If you'd turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter number 5 is where we'll be in uh, Scripture this morning, 1 Corinthians chapter number 5. And uh, if you haven't come to the uh, men's meeting, call it Man Church, uh, we have a fire pit. It's informal. It's a good way to kind of engage Scripture and make friends with people. And uh, so I hope you'll think about being here for that on Thursday. It's how we're doing men's discipleship right now, Thursday at 6.30, and uh, what else, connect cards, if you've never filled out a connect card, it helps us to be able to communicate with you, so we encourage if you would, you know, take a moment, get us some information, we'll email and text about uh, issues and things that are happening in the uh, church, and we'll do our best not to overdo it, but it really does help us a lot to be able to keep in touch with you and to hear from you. And also social media, if we have a Facebook page, and uh, it's helpful. We post information you can interact with and share. It can kind of serve as an invitation, a uh, way of inviting others and keeping them aware of what we're, uh, what's happening at your church. And uh, today in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I said last week we're going verse by verse through uh, books of the Bible. That's probably what I'll always do. Uh, because I think what it helps us to do is interact with truth that God has revealed and uh, God has a purpose in a way that he has orchestrated life to work. And so he gave us the Bible as an incredible gift. And, you know, my conviction about the Bible is that it, you know, people will use the word inerrant uh, to say it's been given to us a book that reflects what God meant for people to know. And so infallible is the idea. We don't dicker with it. We don't try to change it. You know, we take the Bible and we try to interact with it and understand it. And, uh, you know, my conviction is that it's relevant. God gave it to us, us to be relevant for ever, for generation upon generation. And so when we go into it, is it a hard book? Yes, it is. You know, contextually, it was written in a different era at a different time. But you know what doesn't change? People. People don't change. When we read about the way their motives and attitudes and hearts were, it's just the same then as it is now. And so all the things that we'll uh, encounter and the challenges that we'll face, somebody else faced them already. All the sin that we might fall into, somebody else has fallen into it already. And God shows us in the Bible how to live. And one of the you know beautiful truths that I hope we'll keep growing in inside about is how to live in community. A church is a family, a community. And so God gives prescription, you know, boundaries around community and what it has to look like in order to honor him. What does our church family need to be like? And so this passage is difficult, and so will be several others that we'll look at in the coming weeks. But even in that difficulty, we're finding that God is showing us This is what family looks like when it's holy and ordered in a way that God can be accurately reflected in that community. So that's what we're going to see. Let's begin there in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 1. Here's what the, the scripture says. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and such sexual immorality as is not even named among the Gentiles that a man has his father's wife, and you are puffed up or arrogant, and have not rather mourned that he who has done this deed might be taken away from among you. This is interesting. Again, you know, sometimes when you read, look for repetition. Well, this is a repeated idea, the the removal, the having, having been taken out from among them, and the word or phrase among you, in you is repeated over and over in this passage. But he says, For indeed, verse 3, as absent in body, but present in spirit, have I've already judged as though I were present concerning him who has so done this deed. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, along with my spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that his spirit may be saved. In the day of the Lord Jesus. Your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Therefore purge out the old leaven. 
that you may be a new lump, since you truly are unleavened. For indeed Christ, our Passover, was sacrificed for us. Therefore let us keep the feast, not with old leaven, nor with the leaven of malice and wickedness, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters. Since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is a fornicator or a covetous or idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. Not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging those Also who are outside, do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves that wicked person. Let's go to the Lord in prayer again. God, thank you for the Bible and the fact that it does show us uh, timeless, relevant realities that we need. And I pray that you'll give us insight and grace by your Spirit as we look into this passage And that you'll show us how it applies to us now. And I pray, Father, that you'll cleanse us and help us as we enter into the Scripture, God, that you can instruct us by your Spirit. And we need you, and we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, the theme in this passage is really a continuation of what we've seen before. It's talking about the nature of the church. It's talking about community. You know, we've seen over and over again that God is... uh, opposed or through uh, the Apostle Paul the idea of divisiveness and you know that the church community suggests something in itself you know the idea of unity among people who hold, hold something in common and so there are some issues that we've seen that the scripture is trying to help us understand the church as a family in the world that God gives to us to bless us but it has to be ordered a particular way and when, you know, I was reading this passage, of course, it deals with subject matter that we don't talk about all the time. And, you know, we don't talk about often enough in the best way in the context of church. You know, sometimes we just gloss over things and we, you know, we don't uh, enter into issues. And so I titled the message Church Membership and uh, Human Sexuality. Well, the passage is mostly about church membership. You know, what are the parameters? What are the boundaries? What does God say can uh, is permissible among us and what's not permissible? And the idea of what we agree to when we become part of a local church. You know, who do we agree to be? Do I recognize the fact that my life in, intersects your life and that we're integrated into each other and that that's what God intended? You know, he intended for that to be the case. And so he says there is a standard for your behavior as a member of a local church, there's a way that your life has to be so that it reflects me. And, you know, when we look at this passage, here's what happened. A person was involved in an incestuous relationship with his, some people would say, stepmother. It says his father's wife. It's nondescript enough that it could be his mother. So when you, you know, read what commentators say, they say, It could be that, you know, it's just describing something. But the apostle says, look, what's happening is so egregious that even pagans, non-believers who don't confess faith in God at all, don't practice that. And yet it's going on in your congregation and you're behaving as if it's a non-issue. That's the context. That's what's happening. So when we think about wading into other people's problems you know this is a family you know the way we look at it now as a culture is like hey my bedroom is off limits you don't get to talk to me about that but he's talking to them about that right clearly in the passage he's talking to them about that and so I think you know culture affects our understanding of congregational life in an unhealthy way And we have to scrub that so that we can see what God says it means to be part of a church. To belong to one another. And to understand it. But I want to think about that for a moment. What is it that we learn that's incorrect that needs to be altered? You know, one thing is that we're squeamish about talking 
uh, to other people when there's egregious, unrepentant sin in their, in their life. Now, we're going to see that. We're just talking about us, our, the local church, those who have committed to its membership. That's who we're talking to. The local church and those who have said at some point, I want to belong to this church. So for us, Grace Community Church, that's who we're talking about. Now he says, this is, the, this is the issue. If something is unrepentant in the life of another person, they have agreed to come under the authority of that church. And we're going to talk about that you know, as we go through But you've made a decision, a commitment. I'm under this church's authority. My conviction is I belong to you, you belong to me. We all belong to God, most importantly. And so when he he starts to get into this, nobody ever, you have to be a very sick human being to want to meddle in, you know, very personal things in other people's lives to begin with. So we're squeamish. We don't want to do that, you know, to start with. It's hard. But we also live at a time in history when the sexual revolution has come full circle now. And people who join churches often let their convictions be informed more by culture than by scripture. So we look at the society around us, it's got a different set of moral values. And it bleeds over into our consciousness and our way of being. So that this, when we hear something like this, it sounds so unfamiliar to us that you're supposed to behave this way in culture, in your congregational life. Also, we're Americans. So, so nobody tells us what to do, right? Because we're Americans. We're fiercely independent. It's part of the bigger culture that we're a part of. Our rights and our independence are at the forefront. And when that clashes with the idea of what it means to be a citizen of heaven... And to be under the lordship of Jesus and to be under the covenant of a local church, there's going to be uneasiness and conflict. But all the things that, you know, are are implied in this passage are exactly that, okay? If you became a follower of Jesus, you confessed him as Lord. Because the Bible says that if we confess with our mouth Jesus is Lord... And believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead. Then we'll be saved. But there is no salvation apart from the confession that Jesus is Lord. And if we don't understand that, we don't understand what it means to be a a Christian. It's an acknowledgement that Jesus is the Lord of the universe. The creator of everything. And so when I became a follower of Christ, what I said is... As I understand your will, I will say yes to it over and over and over again. And we struggle with that, of course, but it is the reality behind what, it, what makes us Jesus' people, is he's the Lord. We're not. And also, you know, the church itself, what's the nature of it? It is a covenant community. When we say yes to church membership, which we should, as I'm going to keep saying, you should say yes to church membership. We say yes to being part of a covenant community, which means that there are responsibilities, which means that there's accountability, which means that you have a witnessing life. Your life is a witness. Our life collectively together has a common witness that gets communicated through how we are and how people see and perceive us and understand us. So what he's talking about is a big deal. And it's probably different than what we think when we start getting into it. So, you know, we look at it culturally the things that are challenges. We, you know, a lot of times we'll be like, well, this is my life. And I fail to see, you know, how, how you can tell me what to do with my life. Well, you already, you know, decided to set your life, lay your life down, right, to follow Jesus. So when we decide to lay our life down, we, you know, invite, we invite introspection on our own part. We invite, you know, others into it. So we, we fail to see that now, you know, when I'm, became a follower of Jesus, I, I decided that my life would be voluntarily intertwined with other people uh, in 
this witness and worship in community. You know, and also one, you know, the overarching reality that we want to see is that what is God after in the pers- person's life who has committed an egregious sin? What does he want for that person? He wants redemption, right? He wants re- reconciliation. He wants restoration. And, and the Bible makes it clear in another place in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. It says, if anyone is overtaken or captured by sin, you who are spiritual, it says, restore that person in a spirit of gentleness. It says, a spirit of gentleness. Taking, you know, care for yourself that you aren't also tempted. That's what the scripture says. If anyone among you, that's the idea among you, in your membership, is overtaken in a sin. It's egregious, it's obvious, it's public, it's unrepentant. That's the idea. This person has uh, calcified, hardened themselves into a position that says, I will not turn away from this. I'm going to keep doing this. They're approached, confronted, they say, thank you for your advice, I'm going to keep doing what I want. In a situation like that, the Bible says, if there's, you know, you who are spiritual attempt to restore such a one. Restoration, that's the idea. With a spirit of gentleness. You're not going to condemn, blow them out of the water. You are hoping that they will see God's truth and change. That's what it's saying in this, in this passage. So it, what it really is saying is there have to be some people among you who are walking with God, who are obedient, so that they don't think, who am I to go talk to somebody else about their morals? No, it assumes that there will be people in the congregation who are holy and obedient and walking with the Lord who could take this task on. but, But when I think about this, you know, to begin with, these are some of the things that surface in congregational life when we start thinking about the practice of this which we hope is infrequent but we've come full circle in sexual revolution so it's likely that we'll encounter some of the same kind of problems that they did and again all we notice is that human beings are going to have the same impulses and temptations and struggles and, and so that's why this is instructive and helpful but it's talking about the nature of the church so here's the first you know idea that we see in these verses as we go through, being a member of a local church puts you under its authority. It puts you under its authority. That's the agreement that you've made. It's what Paul is obviously working out in this passage. He's talking to people whose understanding is, I'm under the authority of my brothers and sisters and the leaders in a local church. That's what it meant for them. And I don't think you can make it mean anything else, you know, that they see that. So sometimes I've, you know, rarely encountered people that say, I don't think church membership is biblical, but I have met people like that. Well, this passage is really an argument against that perspective. I think they knew that they belonged to each other. They were in fellowship, or they were out of fellowship. That's the idea. But being a member of a local church puts you under its authority. Again, man, we're going to bristle against this in ways that are contrary to what God's personality is because we're shaped by other forces around us in our society. But being a part of a local church is a facet of laying down your life. The church of our membership has the authority by you know, God, according to Scripture, to ask that we live consistently repentant lives. Perfect lives? No. I mean, I know I'm in a room full of people, me included, that aren't perfect. We're not. That's not what it's asking. What it is asking is that anytime it becomes obvious that there is sin in our life that's public and blatant and egregious, we say, I'm wrong. And, and the Bible is right. I'm wrong. The Bible is right. That's what it means to be repentant. Penitent. To live with that mindset. So in Corinth, a person who claimed to be a Christian was involved in 
an inappropriate, by anyone's standard, relationship. It was behavior that was so scandalous it wasn't even common among people with no religious belief at all. He says, even people out there in the world that don't make any claim of any kind of religion don't do that. And yet you're, you're allowing it in your congregation. It was uh, a reminder from Paul to the church at Corinth that God created orders and rules for congregational life. For our lives as human beings and followers of, of Jesus. God created the order for human relationships. God created that in the beginning. The first thing, chapter 2 of Genesis, God lays this out. He doesn't waste any time. He says this is the family. The family is that a man will leave his father and his mother and he will cling to his wife. See that? How clear the identities are. The man leaves his father and mother. He clings to his wife, which is you know, clearly a female in this, you know, in the narrative. And the two will become one flesh. That's what he says. God says, there, there's no editing or changing. God says, this is my arrangement for the human family. It's a man. It's a woman. They're leaving their parents. They're making a binding commitment to one another. This is it. There's no other acceptable way to understand what human relationships look like in family. That's it. If you're a follower of Christ, that's God's definition to you. I've heard people say sometimes, well, Jesus never addressed like homosexuality. Well, go to Matthew chapter 19. Here's what you find. That Jesus absolutely affirmed the Genesis account that I just read, Genesis chapter 2. He's at, he was asked about divorce. He says, is it acceptable to divorce your wife for any cause? Because the religious leaders of his day are always trying to start arguments so that they can undermine his authority in some way. And Jesus says, have you not read that it's written, a man will leave his father and mother, cling to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So he absolutely affirms the Genesis account, which of course he inspired because he's God, and God doesn't you know, disagree with himself. He was God in human form. Of course, he's not going to show up and uh, say something contrary to what he already said because he's perfect. So he shows up and he said the same thing he'd already said. In Genesis chapter 2, he just brings it back up and refreshes it. And here's, here's the reality for what the human family looks like. You know, sometimes we'll be, well, I don't think that's what Jesus is like. Well, am I going to believe you or Jesus? I'm going to believe what he said. Not what you say. I think, you know, based on what? Because that's what we get sometimes. I don't think Jesus is like that. Based on what? When I look at his word, that's exactly what he's like. He says this is the human, this is the ordinance. The created order is like this. That's what Jesus said. So the church has authority to say, when you come in, yes, we will monitor your life in a sense. I know it's contrary to the way the world thinks, but we're not the world, right? We're the church. On clear biblical matters, the church of our membership has authority over our opinions and feelings. Your opinions and your feelings are secondary to facts and truth that God gave us in his word. That's our conviction. You don't have to come under that understanding. You don't have to. But if you come under that understanding, this is its border it's boundary it's limit given not by us or you know some group of people that sat down but as we work through God's word this is what we understand that we subordinate we subordinate our feelings we subordinate our opinions to the word of God that's our challenge so there is a difference between blatant, unrepentant immorality and struggling forward as we move along a continuum in sanctification. There, there's a difference in that. There's a difference in a person that's like struggling with something, but in their mind and heart they want to please God. And they're trying to be accountable. and They're, they're trying to be honest. 
And they're, and they're trying their best to be obedient. There's a difference in that and somebody who has driven a stake down into a fixed immoral position and says, this is where I'm living. If you don't like it, too bad. Those are different things. And that's not what the Scripture is addressing. It is addressing someone who knew that the church had said what they were doing was wrong. They said, I'm just going to keep doing it. You don't like it, too bad. At least that was his position at first. So it has to do with the heart and the attitude and our willingness to commit to define truth and sin and obedience the same way as God. There's a, a scripture, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, <clears throat> that you're probably familiar with, and it says, If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. That word confess there puts together two words, the word that says same and word in Greek. In other words, confession is saying the same thing as God. When God says this is wrong, this is off limits, confession means I take what God said and I apply it to my situation. Yes, God, you're right, that is off limits. And so if we confess our sins, if we say the same thing about them as God, the scripture says, he, he will cleanse us and forgive us and restore us. But that's the position that we assume when we become part of a local church and part of the body of Christ. And there is no such thing as being part of the body of Christ without being part of the local church in the Bible. They're the same. It's like somebody that becomes a follower of Christ should seek out a local church and connect and be part of it and under its ordinance and its commands, under its you know, charter under its covenant, and this church has one. And one thing I, you know, I want to say, and say it until you really hear me, is that we want to make a clear pathway for people to come into that. We think it's the right thing for you, for everybody. We think it's how God made things to work. And so in the future, we're going to do things like have days where you can you know, we'll have a meal maybe and a presentation of membership information so you can take the next step and become part of this, this community. A holy community is the idea in the Bible. The church of our membership has authority to remove us if we fail to turn away from glaring flagrant sin. That's what this passage teaches. Paul says... I've already, you know, there, there's no debate in my mind as to what you should do if this person persists in this condition of thinking and behaving. He says, you've got to take them out of your fellowship. And he's going to talk more about why. But when we come into a local church community as a member, we're acknowledging that they have the right, if our life persists into some public sin that we're hardened in, to say, you're not a member anymore. That would be absolutely, obviously, you know, a last step. But that's where they were. They were at the last step. So the challenge facing churches is whether we'll be anguished over sin or accommodating of sin. See, they, were, they weren't anguished. He says, you're arrogant where you should be anguished. He says, you're puffed up where you should be broken and humbled. So... This is the ongoing challenge probably until Jesus returns. It's for churches to decide what we're going to be like. Are we going to be accommodating? Or are we going to be anguished, broken when, when it comes to... And, the, and part of that anguish means, yeah, there's empathy. If there's not empathy, I can't be anguished, right? I'm, I'm sorry that it's this way because I know this is not God's best for you. That's how a person would feel, not judgmental, critical, angry. But this is a person who already said, I want to be part of that community. You're not judging people outside like we're talk, going to talk about. That's not it. But when we come inside, you know, part of it is, yeah, we're anguished because we don't want to see your life this way. The person's uh, lifestyle, inner life, gave no evidence of authentic regeneration in this situation, at least not at that point. And the larger issue was that the church was nonchalant. They were way too casual. At least some of them were. Although God had said, I'm the Lord 
and I do not change. I'm the Lord. That's what God says. Uh, I, I'm the Lord. I do not change. There's a passage in Second uh, Timothy 2.13 says, If we deny him, he won't deny himself. He's, he, he, he's faithful. He's faithful. He's, he doesn't change. He doesn't alter. And he won't deny himself. So, you know, first that's what we see, that we're talking about local church membership. And, and the second idea here is that being a member of a local church places us in deeply meaning, spiritual proximity and connection to other Christians. So you're not just out on an island somewhere. When we understand this properly, this is what the scripture says. You're not, it's not just you. Now, you're coming into connection with other people. Your proximity to them will influence them for good or for bad. You know, so hopefully, what do we want to do? I hope we want to bless and help each other, right? On this journey as we go through life. We want to bless and help. But because of our proximity, we can do harm or we can do good. We can help or we can harm. So our lives are intersecting with each other, and when we say yes to a church family, we commit to seriousness about the effect of our relationship in the gospel and in spiritual formation and godliness. We're leading with mercy, hopefully. That's how I come forward, is in mercy. While we pursue a grace-tinged, Grace always has to be at the heart of it. We're saved by grace. We're kept by grace. We don't deserve it. God's given us an incredible gift. But as we come into uh, this community, it is a unique and supernatural community. If it loses that dynamic, if it loses that characteristic, it has lost its opportunity to witness to the world that God transforms and changes and alters. That's why this is so, such a serious matter and why it was given to us in Scripture to think about and re, repeatedly reflect on and preach and talk through age after age after age. If a member of our body becomes fixed in a flagrantly sinful path and they refuse to uh, consider the church's appeal to repentance, the Bible says they should be removed and it gives us the reason so that old pre-Christian patterns don't prevail in the church's fellowship. See, when you say yes to Jesus, you're putting off. That's the word the Bible uses, the old man, right? You're putting off the old man. Over and over, where God shows us stuff in our life, and we're like, okay, I can see how this doesn't fit. You know, when I became a follower of Christ, of course... Now I'm, uh, I became a follower of Jesus in 1987, so that was a long time ago. I know, some of y'all weren't even, I've got socks older than some of you, stuff like that. But, you know, when I started to be a part of local church, and still there's, I, I have a friend that says all Christians start out as legalists. I think that's probably true. You know, you start out like, with all this stuff that don't, you start out burning cassette tapes and cracking CDs and vinyl albums, and you don't know what to do. You're trying to find an identity in the church, and then sooner or later you figure out different things. But God is always telling you, strip off the old way. Strip it off. Put it aside. Embrace something new and better. A new man, a new person, a new woman with its its you know, descriptions and ways because God loves us as we kept hearing and he knows what helps you and what doesn't help you. It's not about uh, strictness. It's not about legalism. It is about the life that God created and ordered. It, he didn't make it up. It just exudes from who he is. That's what this life is that we're trying to live out. It just comes out of his heart and his being. So... Moral laxity, the scripture says here, is showing us, gives birth to more indifference and a lack of distinction needed to accurately reflect God. So when we set it aside like they were, as much as anything, this passage is about the problem with their mentality, not the sin. It was the problem in the church's mentality. 
He's like, you are functioning in a way that eventually is going to discredit God to the world. That's why it mattered. The unrepentant behavior of a single church member can contaminate and be a detriment to the whole community. Now, he uses a very obscure for us illustration about leaven, yeast. But if you go back to the Old Testament, what you see is when they observed Passover, God said, take all of the leaven out of your house. It's weird to us. We don't get it. It doesn't really make perfect sense. But that's what the past part of the Passover was. You take all the leaven out. Well, leaven in this illustration, and it's really used two ways in the Bible, it's just used as an idea of something that pervades. Something that uh, when you put yeast into unleavened dough, what does it do? It infiltrates, right? It spreads throughout. In a sense, it contaminates. So that's the way it's used here, is the idea of something that if you don't check it, if you don't remove it, it contaminates, it causes the rest of it to go in the same direction. That's why he says this, what he says in the passage, that actions of a few people can be disastrous for all. Leaven in the context here is the presence of something that spreads unwanted and unwelcome. So the churches, as a writer named Gardner says, the community of the new era, the age ushered in by Christ in his death and resurrection. So the church is something new that reflects what God wanted for people all along. Imperfectly, yes, for sure. But that doesn't mean we don't strive for holiness and we don't strive for accuracy. That's what this passage is trying to help us get. So, believers are always purging and cleansing that which is unfitting. That's the idea of leaven in here and what the the Passover illustration. We're always purging and cleansing what's unfitting. When God shows it to me, I agree with God. Just like we said before, I confess it. God, that's not you. That's not what you want. I want to turn away from that. This commitment marks us as belonging and yielding to God's purposes and making a new people for his image and in his glory. And thirdly, here in this passage, thinking about membership, belonging, community, as God ordained it and gave it to us. Being a member of a local church does not mean that we project its requirements onto those outside who do not know Jesus. That's what he says here. The rest of this passage says... He says, I wrote to you that you wouldn't keep company with sexually immoral people. But he says, certainly I didn't mean sexually immoral people in the world or else you'd have to go out of the world. He says, the world's full of sexually immoral people. He says, that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the church. I'm talking about us in community with each other. So we don't project our requirements. This is the mistake that Christians make in our thinking routinely, in my opinion is that we, we want to bring the whole world under you know, the principle that we've lived by, but what they need first is the gospel. I, was, I lived in sexual Im- immorality as an unsaved person, you know, to my shame. When I came to Christ, I understood it wasn't fitting. Not the way God intended for me to, to live my life anymore. But... A person who isn't under the gospel needs the gospel. That's what they need first. They need to receive Jesus so that they have the impetus for change, the power to change. So we're told to, in this passage, do two things. Withdraw from from immoral people who claim to be Christians and go to immoral people who make no claim to be a Christian. That's what it says. Withdraw from people who, even though they say, I'm a Christian... It says, you, it shouldn't be so that people can readily identify you with a person who's a swindler, extortioner, you know, whose ethics don't match their confession. You be careful that your association doesn't create the impression that you approve of that. That's what it's saying. On the other hand, go to people who need Jesus, even if their life is a complete broken down mess. It's just two different approaches. On the one hand, your approach is to restore this person to their confession and to 
their walk with the Lord. On the other hand, it's to help them to come to know Jesus in a transformational way. So we often have it mixed up, I think. The result that uh, uh, we think about judging and criticizing people who are outside, well, that's not what God said for us to do. He said, leave that to me. There's a time for judgment, and God is the righteous judge, and he'll judge people whether they've responded to the gospel or they have not. He says, that's not your terrain. When it talked about uh, turning this guy over to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his soul might be saved in the day of Christ, what it was saying is put him into the world. He can't be part of your fellowship until his heart's changed. You put him into the world. That's Satan's domain. The church is my domain. That's what he means. And it may be that, you know, he... You remember what in David, David's case, uh, it's very similar to this, right? David, the man after God's own heart. What did David do? Committed egregious, open, public, well, it became open in public, but egregious sin by committing adultery with Bathsheba was not his wife. Even worse stuff than that, really. That was bad. Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are written about by David about himself. And you remember what he says happened? He says, when he describes it, it was like physical, physical stuff. Because he was suppressing something in himself that he knew dishonored the God that he professed to love. You remember that? And David writes about it and how he describes what it felt like to live with that misery. He was a miserable person. And I think that's part of what Paul is talking about when he says, turn him over for the destruction of the flesh. A person that really knows God. If there's something in us, a shadow life, a secret life, it's going to destroy us inside until we can uh, repent and turn away from it. Because something holy lives in you if you're God's, right? Something holy lives, someone holy lives in you if you belong to God. So when we see this, I think it's showing us those kinds of realities that like with David, he finally came to a point when he was confronted that we, how do we know he repented? Because he wrote Psalm 32 and he wrote Psalm 51. And they're called penitent psalms because they describe, I would say go read them. Because they describe what happened when this guy hit a tipping point and his relationship with God began to be restored. There was openness, there was confession, there was invitation by him to say, God, come back into my life. Come back into this, this reality with me. Help me to be restored. So we can see that in his life. So we're, we're told, withdraw from immoral people so that maybe, you know, they'll, they'll turn. If they're members of your congregation, your body, they've said yes to its covenant and come under it. But then go to immoral people who make no claim of being Christians with the good news, with the gospel. And we hope for redemptive outcomes when people are captured by sin. This passage doesn't tell you the whole story. It tells you part of it. If you go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2, it tells you it seems what happened to this guy. Because, if, you know, when you go and read there, what you find is Paul describing a situation. If it's not this situation, it's one very much like it. Where they, the church confronted someone who was in a very public, blatant, they're basically telling the church, hey, get out of my business, I'm going to do what I want. They went to this person, and eventually he was so grieved and overcome with uh, grief that he repented, and he came back, and it describes that in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 2. It's where the Bible talks about um, godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This guy had it, godly sorrow, or this person did. And so what we know is God's highest call and hope for every human life is for union with himself. But there are terms, and God is holy, and his goal is holiness, that we would especially be set apart for him. The Bible plainly says, listen, this is what the Bible plainly says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. You know, people often say, I wish I knew the will of God for my life. Well, that passage says, this is the will of God for you, your sanctification, that you would walk in holiness, and it says that you would abstain from sexual immorality. 
couldn't be much plainer than that. I mean, it's not the only place that the will of God is described for us. But maybe one reason this is such a vital issue is because of how close to us, you know, it, this question is of whether our ethics about relationships match what God says they should be or not. Yeah, the Bible compares sexual immorality to covetousness, greediness. Why does it do that? Because it, acting outside of God's will is selfishly taking what I want. That's what it is. It, you know, it reflects a, a way of understanding other people that God says is idolatry. It's idolatry. It's me getting what I want at the expense of other people and not considering all of the implications of life as God intends it in, in a marriage relationship with all the commitment and all this, the difficulty and all the wonderful blessings that go along with being in a marriage relationship. So th- this gets down to God's best for us. And, but, it, you know, like I say, mostly it's about the nature of the church. We're literally immersed in a culture that is experiencing the aftermath of the sexual revolution. If you don't know what that is, it's like in the 60s or so, you know, there was a whole emphasis that sort of cast off a certain way of understanding moral boundaries and just said anything goes. And, you know, so you're not stupid. (laughs) You watch TV, right? You see the way that, you know, sex is portrayed in a culture like ours. And there's pressure to accommodate the ideology of the culture and to make, you know, concession in the church. And it's going to be present and persistent, I think, until Christ returns. So churches risk losing their biblical witness and distinction because we are unwilling to take biblical sanctification seriously. But if we lose that, sorry, game over. We don't have much of anything to offer the rest of the world. The gospel as a transformational force loses its power among us. So maybe on a certain level, if a person is saying, you know, I don't want to come under that, you you probably shouldn't. If a person says, I don't want to, you know, commit to that, well, church membership probably is not right for you now. Because what you're, you know, what we're saying is, I agree to this covenant. I agree to this understanding of the Bible and how it matches up with the heart of the heart of God for the world. But as much as anything, this passage clear, clearly demonstrates that uh, biblical church me- or church membership is biblical. I, I've said that lots of times. That like when you read this passage. Sometimes uh, it makes a negative argument for church membership. They knew who was in because they could put him out. They knew who was in. They knew who had agreed and come over the churches uh, under its covenant. So the Bible encourages and I think uh, makes clear that membership, belonging in this intense, immediate way is God's purpose for every child of his. The will of God is not that we hold the church at arm's length, but that we count the cost and commit to everything God is demanding. And we see that they knew who was in, they knew who was out of community. It took a while to convince all of them. They weren't all convinced, were they? He wouldn't be having this conversation with them if everybody was convinced, but eventually they grew to understand, yeah, this is what it means to be part of this new community. They were committed to covenant community. When they weren't committed, they were called out for it by the apostles. Apostolic faith is the faith that we have, right? The apostolic faith was a diagram that God was given to what church and belonging and humanity all meant. And they were giving us a a scheme, a diagram to follow, to keep going back to and to pass along to us generation after generation so that what we're practicing won't feel right to a society like ours. But it's not new. It's not new. It's what people have practiced from the first century until now. 
And God does not need an editor. Sometimes we think God needs an editor. He needs to uh, redact or, you know, he needs somebody to get involved with him to bring this stuff up to uh, current times. Nope. God meant what he said originally. He gave us his purpose and he's not going to deviate from it. So I read just this week, someone said, we must let the word of God correct us in the same way we let it encourage us. You know, sometimes what we want from the Bible is just give me the, um, you know, the positive stuff that I can put on a poster on my wall to encourage me when I, you know, just give me like uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. You know, give me positive. But no, sometimes the Bible's going to correct us and we need that part of it too. I just want the encouragement. Well, then you have a baby fate, you know, because grown-ups take correction and uh, encouragement. And discipline and boundaries. Well, I said this was going to be difficult. It's not the last of these kinds of uh, messages that we'll encounter in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> but what's God saying? He's saying, look, this is what it means to be a new human. This is what it means to embrace Jesus. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. He gave his life to, to give you life. And it's free. But it's not cheap. It's not something that we should uh, dumb down. It's not something that we should, you know, uh, compromise about. He's calling us to, to a, a new way of living. Uh, later on, well, in 2 Corinthians 5.17, the Bible says, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become new. Now, we've said, you know, we're journeying. Hear me clearly, God's grace, the, I love John's gospel where it says there's grace for every need of grace upon grace. Grace for every need of grace. So as you journey, like me, you'll find that old pre-Christian life is still going to keep trying to barge its way back into this new life. And we constantly need grace. And thank God His grace is available. And that's the pr- predominant thing about Christian community. It ought to be a place where... We encounter grace and God's goodness in, in each other. But the same grace doesn't let us get calcified and stuck in some uh, sinful place that is, is going to uh, cause us not to be aligned with what God's best for us is. I'm going to pray for us. We're going to uh, have a song, time of commitment. And I, you know, I keep saying, if, you, if the first step for you is baptism, following the Lord in obedience, then... This is an opportunity for you to publicly start that and say, I'd like to be baptized as a follower of Jesus. Or to approach us and say, I know there's a process for church membership. You know, I understand this idea of new community. I want to live under its covenant as a committed follower of Christ. Then this is an opportunity for you to respond. Or, you know, to connect with us afterward and talk through that. Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the Bible. Thank you for how it uh, gives us 